I next met with Professor John Crown, who's been a central figure in the CIRG group that conducted the so-called 006 trial, which was one of the four major randomized studies evaluating adjuvant trastuzumab and the only study that included a regimen without an anthracycline, the so-called TCH regimen. Dr. Crown began our conversation by taking a step back and commenting on where we are today in adjuvant therapy clinical research. I think we're at quite a crossroads right now in adjuvant therapy. I think a lot of loose ends from the chemotherapy and endocrine therapy areas are being tied up. And I think we're, you know, really embarking fully on our journey into the world of molecular therapeutics for adjuvant treatment of early stage breast cancer. But it is time for reflection on what we've achieved because it's really interesting to note here in 2008, we're now about 50 years into adjuvant chemotherapy from the first patients being enrolled on the great Bernie Fisher's first NSABP study. And we have achieved a tremendous amount. Um, If you look at the data from the Oxford overview, it would suggest that certainly especially in the younger age groups, that the proportion of early relapses that have been avoided because of modern chemotherapy versus no chemotherapy may be as high as about 50%. Even if you look at quite mature data from the Oxford overview at mortality, the absolute benefit which has been gained in terms of preventing death has been really quite large as well. We often think when we see adjuvant trials presented with what appear to be small differences between curves that made very small benefits. But the truth is when you add them all together, it's quite a large benefit. And modern taxane-containing adjuvant regimens compared to no chemotherapy at all are probably adding something like an extra 14 to 15 absolute percentage points to 10-year survival, which of course means that for, you know, every 100 women, that there are another 15 who are alive rather than dead at the end of 10 years, which is really an extraordinary, extraordinary achievement. And There is no doubt that there has been a huge effort over the last few years in attempting to nuance the kinds of chemotherapy we give, and in particular looking at one taxane versus the other, looking at sequences, dose, et cetera, et cetera. I sort of suspect we're now getting into the area of a law of diminishing returns on this, and we're probably close to maximum of what we can achieve with chemotherapy. And my own feeling is that as a community of doctors and nurses who treat patients with early-stage breast cancer, as a community of investigators, we need to reformat the next generation of questions. I guess you really don't see too many chemotherapy trials anymore. There's still some being reported in terms of new trials being launched, you know, comparing chemo A to chemo B. It's more bringing in biologics, I guess, now. I think that is correct. I think we still will see sort of the tail end of those trials, which were accruing until fairly recently. And my own belief at this stage is that there are few very compelling chemotherapy questions which need to be asked at this stage. Certainly, I won't say which need to be asked, but which would be asked with a higher priority than some of the newer molecular drugs, which I think need to be developed and put into trials. Let's talk about what's happened in the last few years in terms of adjuvant therapy, the patient with a HER2-positive tumor, because a lot of people are seeing that as sort of the beginning of the wave of the future, as you're talking about, in terms of new strategies. Can you talk about sort of how that evolved and where we are right now? Well, it really is one of the most heartening stories, not only in oncology, but in modern medicine. And when you think that Dennis Lehman's original observations in the mid-1980s concerning what was then a possible prognostic role for the HER2 system or for alterations in the HER2 system in breast cancer and the degree of skepticism with which that contention was greeted at the time. It's extraordinary to think that within a few years it was accepted. Within a few years more, there was a human medicinal product available for trials. And 
within, you know, 20 years from the first biological stirring, we actually had very good and usable adjuvant data for patients with early stage disease. And as your listenership will know, we saw the first trials in metastatic disease, the pivotal study of chemotherapy plus receptin versus chemotherapy alone showing a benefit in response, disease-free, and in survival, and subsequently a quick move towards adjuvant trials. And the world in general followed one of two paths. The very traditional path in adjuvant trials development was the one I would call incrementalist, which was you take what was the best standard adjuvant chemotherapy regimen and add your new drug to it. And that that served us relatively well when we were looking at chemotherapy drugs. Um, BCIRG prominently took a different role. We decided that in the molecular era that laboratory observations should be used to actually inform the new generation of studies. And that's why in our trial, BCIRG006, we had a conventional arm of anthracycline and docetaxel chemotherapy. We had an experimental arm which had that same treatment with trastuzumab. And finally, we had a wholly novel arm in which we took carboplatin, docetaxel, and trastuzumab, carboplatin being somewhat counterintuitive in this setting, but having a good basis from the lab. And the data from that study, which have been presented several times and are just about to be submitted in manuscript form, have shown clearly that the two trastuzumab-containing arms were superior to the non-trastuzumab-containing arm. There was really no difference between the two trastuzumab-containing arms in terms of efficacy, but there is a, I believe, potentially important difference in toxicity in that the anthracycline and trastuzumab arm caused an excessive cardiac toxicity. The arm in which there was no anthracycline had some cardiac toxicity, but much less. And we also saw some cases of leukemia and MDS in the arms where there was anthracycline. And I guess the non-anthracycline arm that you talked about, and I guess conventionally is called TCH, and we're seeing a lot more use of that because of concerns about cardiac toxicity. What actually is the magnitude, though, of how often you see cardiac problems? Well, in our study, we saw uh, approximately 2.1% incidence of an actual definition of heart failure, not just an impairment of ejection fraction as measured objectively, but an actual definition, a New York heart classification definition of heart failure, 2% of the time. And it was less than one half percent of the time on the TCH arm. 2% with the anthracycline receptin, less than a half percent. Now, they, they seem like small numbers, but Neil, this is an adjuvant population. Many of these patients are cured. And as well, you know, practicing oncology nurses and oncologists will know that unfortunately when patients get anthracycline cardiac toxicity, it tends to remain a lifelong accompaniment for them. It does not tend to get better. What about the risk of leukemia and MDS that you talked about? That is a very small risk. But the truth is there was a paper in the JNCI in the last several years which suggested that perhaps for some of the more aggressive anthracycline regimens, especially if hematopoietic growth factors we use, that the incidence of leukemic or pre-leukemic states could be approximately 1%. Now, I think we should put this in context. If the anthracycline-containing treatments were clearly better, you would say that the small risk of cardiac failure, the small risk of leukemia should be discounted. But that is not the case. The data from our study would suggest that the two receptin trastuzumab containing arms are essentially interchangeable in terms of their anti-cancer efficacy. And what was seen in terms of anti-cancer effect, and how did that compare to the other studies that looked at the same question? The magnitude of our hazard ratio was a little bit less on the second analysis than was originally reported in the joint analysis of the two American trials. But again, I would advise a little caution in that. The first thing to say is our control arm, I believe, was better. Our control arm contained three-weekly docetaxel, whereas the control arm of most of the patients who were on the other study was three-weekly paclitaxel. 
And I think there are good ways of giving paclitaxel, but three weekly, three hour is probably not one of them. So I believe that our control arm was probably better and we were presented with a more stern challenge. So what was seen? The hazard ratios for the two arms were both in the 0.6 range, 0.67 and 0.61, were the hazard ratios for risk reduction for the two trastuzumab containing arms. So 30 or 40% reduction in relapse rate. In our first iteration, it was somewhat higher, but with longer follow-up, as has been the case with other trials, that result has attrited somewhat, but is still a major, major risk reduction compared to any other single drug intervention. So basically, this is reducing relapse rate above and beyond chemotherapy or hormonal therapy. That is correct. That is correct. It's actually intriguing, and possibly our Oxford colleagues will be able to tell us this at some stage in the future, what the magnitude of the benefit is for chemotherapy plus trastuzumab versus no chemotherapy or trastuzumab for HER2 positive patients. I'm not sure if they'll have a data set which can answer that, but if you do the arithmetic in your head, it seems to me that overall that strategy of giving good chemo plus trastuzumab compared to no adjuvant therapy is reducing the risk of relapse by at least half and possibly a lot more. Maybe we should take a step back and talk a little bit about what exactly HER2 is, how does trastuzumab work, and what are some of the other anti-HER2 agents that are coming along trying to target this pathway, and also how we measure HER2. Well, HER2 is a normal gene. It's found in pretty much every cell in everybody's body. The thing that occurs in what we call HER2 positive or HER2 amplified or HER2 abnormal breast cancers is that as part of the process of malignancy, a mutation is seen in the HER2 gene. And there are different, it can be amplified, you can see deletions, etc. But in general, amplification would appear to be the key event. Now, there are in general two ways of measuring whether a tumor is quote-unquote HER2 abnormal. And they are by using a molecular technique called FISH, which actually looks at the gene and sees if it's amplified, or by using immune histochemistry, where the cells are checked to see if there is overexpression of the HER2 protein. Now, There is a little controversy on this. I mean, both tests can be quite accurate. There is general agreement that there is a higher degree of reproducibility for the FISH test and that it is a more accurate test, although many centers are still using IHC. In our own studies, we have mandated central FISH testing. Other controversies which have arisen are whether there is or is not a relationship between the degree of HER2 amplification and the Herceptin effect. The jury's still out a little bit on that one. And whether there are some patients who despite having an apparently HER2 normal profile in terms of both gene and IHC may still derive a benefit from trastuzumab. This was suggested in a relatively small data set of patients from the NSABP trial. Again, very controversial, and I don't think anybody would recommend that. But about what percent of patients have overexpression of HER2? It's generally between 20 and 30%. And what happens is those cancers are worse. They are more aggressive, they relapse more frequently, they relapse more quickly, they have higher indices of tumor kinetics, they tend to have greater degrees of tumor vascularization, they tend to have greater degrees of nodal involvement, metastasis, etc. They are worse cancers. And one of the really quite striking things that really has, I think, just got people really speculating about this is that the addition of trastuzumab appears not just to reduce that excess risk which the HER2-positive cancers have, but it speculatively, it might actually make them better than what were HER2-negative cancers treated in other ways. And where we see this is in the preoperative therapy of locally advanced breast cancer, where there have been several reports, one famously from the MD Anderson in a small randomized trial, suggesting that between a half and two-thirds of patients have pathological complete remissions. 
There is no conventional chemotherapy regimen that I'm aware of that was producing a pathological complete remission rate remotely approaching that. And by pathological complete remission, we're talking the, about the, the surgery they go done, to surgery, there's yes, no tumor. It's all gone. Everything is gone. There's no invasive cancer left. Now, in answer to your other question, there are a number of other drugs which are being looked at for HER2-positive disease. One that is great interest in is lipatinib. And lipatinib is an oral drug. It's a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It works sort of on the intracellular side. And the real question about lipatinib at this stage is not whether it works in HER2-positive disease. It clearly does. But what its right role will be. At the moment, it is licensed for use in trastuzumab failures. But the speculation is that perhaps if we give the two drugs together, we might see a greater effect than if you give one alone. I guess the other issue about lipatinib as opposed to trastuzumab being an antibody that doesn't really have much in the way of side effects is that, like the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are out there, there's some side effects and toxicity to be dealt with. The side effects of the two drugs, as you correctly point out, are different. Now, of course, the side effect which has absolutely held our attention with trastuzumab has been cardiac toxicity. We are obviously awaiting direct head-to-head comparative data to see whether this toxicity is less prominent with lipatinib. But on the basis of data which has been compiled retrospectively from a number of studies presented by Edith Perez about a year ago, it would appear that cardiac toxicity is less of a problem with lipatinib. Although I say that, you know, with caution until we actually see further prospective data, but it certainly is not appearing to be as big a problem as it was. There are a number of toxicities which occur with lipatinib. Um, In general, compared to chemotherapy, we must put a context on this. This is not a toxic drug compared to most chemotherapy agents. But it can cause prominent diarrhea. It can cause skin rashes. And there have been a few cases of, you know, cardiac dysfunction reported with it. On a day-to-day basis, the side effects that people will be most aware of, however, are diarrhea, rash, and maybe some nausea. There's been a little warning recently that a very rare patient can develop a severe syndrome of liver toxicity with lipatinib. This is distinctly uncommon, but again, just caution and monitoring of liver function tests is advisable when patients are on the drug. What about the next generation of clinical trials trying to look at these patients? Unfortunately, still, although the relapse rate has been decreased very substantially, as you talked about, still there are patients who relapse and die after receiving adjuvant trastuzumab. What about new strategies to try to prevent that from happening? Well, I think there are going to be two broad strands there. One is going to be trying to optimize the use of the currently available drugs, both in terms of their current indications and also widening them into the adjuvant setting. And in that regard, the ALTO trial, I think, is of critical importance. I think that the activity which was reported in heavily pretreated HER2-positive patients in the licensing trial in which they were randomly assigned to get capsidabine plus lipatinib or capsidabine alone clearly showed you know, a substantial degree of benefit in a very poor prognosis, heavily pretreated group of patients. And it has led to the drug getting into adjuvant treatment for HER2-positive disease. And in the ALTO trial, the strategies of trastuzumab alone, lipatinib alone, or the combination of the sequence are all being addressed in what is really perhaps the most ambitious and large-scale adjuvant drug trial ever assayed in human breast cancer. I believe that that is an important study, and I will certainly eagerly await the results of it. I would have been a little happier if they hadn't mandated anthracycline chemotherapy as the chemotherapy backbone, because I think there is a real controversy right now as to whether we should be giving anthracyclines. And I have a little teeny concern about giving people anthracyclines who are then going to get trastuzumab and lipatinib. The second issue, then, is one that, you know, thankfully some light has been shed on over the last year, is how to approach the patients whose disease has progressed on trastuzumab. And... 
there have been a few strategies there. One, obviously, is to go straight to capecitabine plus lapatinib, which is the licensed indication on both sides of the Atlantic. The second issue then arose as to whether these patients could perhaps be retreated with trastuzumab with a different chemotherapy. And this has been a real thorny one for several years. And it was, I think, largely addressed in a trial which was presented at ASCO and again at the European meetings, showing that continuation or rechallenging with trastuzumab with second-line chemotherapy actually was better than giving the second-line chemotherapy alone. There has also been data this year suggesting that perhaps patients whose disease has relapsed may do better with the combination of trastuzumab and lapatinib than with lapatinib alone, a relatively small study, but I think important data. And finally, there are a number of the newer molecular drugs, such as the RAD, which have been studied and have been shown to produce some activity in trastuzumab, failed metastatic breast cancer. So I think we have a lot of things to keep us busy over the next few years. There's also going to be further attempts to unravel the molecular biology of resistance, and a lot of interest is focusing on PI3 kinase and other pathways that may be centrally involved. Now, there's another major study out there in your group, the CRG and the NSABP are working together on the so-called BETH study. Could you explain what that's looking at? Well, Neil, I think the two big challenges facing the HER2 adjuvant community were looking at lapatinib, and the second one was looking at the whole question of angiogenesis, because there is quite a large body of data at this stage which suggests that HER2-positive cancers may also overexpress VEGF, they're more vascular, and there may be a strong interrelation between the two in terms of poor prognosis. Synergy data for combined antibody therapeutics were demonstrated and as well as that in a clinical trial conducted by Dr. Pegram and colleagues then at UCLA, substantial activity was seen for the combination in heavily pretreated patients. So the BETH trial is a prospective randomized adjuvant study for HER2-positive, node-positive, and node-negative patients in which patients will get conventional chemotherapy plus trastuzumab with or without the addition of bevacizumab continued for one year. There was substantial discussion as to what the chemotherapy arm would be But in general, there are two options available to investigators. One is to take a more traditional anthracycline arm. But we believe that most investigators are going to follow the alternative, which is our own taxotere, docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab regimen, with or without bevacizumab. That has started accruing worldwide. Let's talk a little bit about hormonal therapy in the adjuvant setting. If you can kind of talk about sort of what the usual approach is in a premenopausal and postmenopausal patient. At this stage, the consensus is just very, very strong that there is a benefit associated with having some part of your therapy given in the form of an aromatase inhibitor as opposed to having it given completely in the form of tamoxifen, provided, of course, you are postmenopausal. There are a number of strategies which can be followed. One is the primary use of an aromatase inhibitor. One is a crossover strategy. And at this point in time, the data do not strongly suggest that one is superior to the other. And our arguments can be advanced both ways. Your nursing and medical listeners will, of course, be very familiar now with aromatase inhibitor therapy. And I guess one of the things from a patient's point of view that oncology nurses in particular are going to hear time after time after time is the joint discomfort, which I must say came as a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. I think it was something that there wasn't as much focus on in the trials. Once the drugs became widely used in this setting, it became apparent that this was, in many ways, the major side effect. We worry about bone loss and we all take measures to monitor and prevent bone loss, which I think is reasonable. But the joint discomfort, which appears to be more of a synovitis than anything to do with bone loss, and which occurs quite acutely on treatment, can occasionally be disabling to the point of discontinuation of therapy. Attempts to change from one to another AI 
will on an anecdotal basis sometimes result in some degree of amelioration of the symptoms. It is not consistent and it is certainly not consistent that one or other of the three currently available AIs is a greater or lesser culprit in this regard. But in my own very large breast cancer practice where I have many patients on AIs, I will have patients who just have to come off them and go back to tamoxifen because they cannot tolerate them. What's the thinking about why these arthralgias occur? It may be an estrogen deprivation phenomenon. There's a growing literature on it. There's been an imaging literature now which has actually shown that it actually is more of a tenosynovitis than anything else. And our own group is, in fact, about to embark on a major rheumatology-led study actually trying to characterize pathologically some of the joint changes which occur in the more severe cases. What about in the premenopausal patient? What's the strategy there? Well, the big story this year was the Austrian trial presented at ASCO and updated at the European meetings in the last two months. And this was a study which gave a treatment which would look distinctly unusual to a North American audience of oncology nurses and doctors. This was a study in which premenopausal patients were all treated with ovarian suppression and were then randomly assigned to get either an aromatase inhibitor or a tamoxifen, which made no difference in this analysis. But the thing which caught everybody's attention was the second randomization, where they were randomized to get bisphosphonate, zoledronic acid zomida. And there was a major reduction in the risk of relapse and approximately one-third reduction in the risk of relapse from giving zomida. And it wasn't just bone relapse. It was cancer relapse. Now, the other thing which has kind of got people's attention a little bit about that trial is the fact that globally, in the absence of chemotherapy, this trial, which contained a demographic of one-third patients with no positive disease, had an unusually good outcome. So I think most people are cautioning that we need to see a little more maturity in those data. And there is, of course, a second large international trial called the Azure Study, which hopefully will generate some data over the next 12 to 18 months in which patients would have received conventional chemotherapy or hormones as per clinical scenario and then were randomly assigned to get bisphosphonate or not. It should be noted, by the way, that the bisphosphonate schedule used in the Austrian study was a very intermittent schedule and it was not one which you would really worry an awful lot about osteonecrosis of the jaw, which, of course, for our metastatic patients is occasionally a very big problem. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of what osteonecrosis of the jaw is? It's a subject of a great interest. One of the earlier groups to actually notice this and did report it. What happens basically is that patients who are on bisphosphonates for typically patients who are doing well and who are on it for a longer period of time, typically patients that have been getting more intensive monthly schedules, more typically patients who are getting zomita, zoledronic acid rather than really a pamadronic acid, start to develop dental problems. And what happens often is a precipitating event involving a dental procedure which doesn't heal. They end up having a socket syndrome, which doesn't heal, and they then have quite severe jaw pain. And on imaging, are found of evidence of some what looks like osteomyelitis of the jaw. And in fact, what it is is an osteonecrosis. There is actually destruction of a bit of the jaw. Typically, the lower jaw is occasionally reported in the upper jaw. Now, there has been much speculation about what causes this, but we actually generated a particular hypothesis. We believe it's a vascular event. And we believe that what is probably occurring is that as a result of osteosclerosis, which is really what you want to see with bisphosphonate treatment, you are seeing a degree of bone overgrowth, which because of the blood supply of much of the jaw comes from small perforating blood vessels, we believe that these are being compromised. And indeed, we've actually reported a radiological study which would tend to support that. But from a practical point of view, the number one sort of fire alarm, red light emergency that nurses must be aware of when they take a phone call and which doctors must know is, dentists need to be warned not to do extractions on these patients, except if they are critically, critically necessary. They are really at risk for having problems if they do. 
Some of the patients will develop quite severe osteomyelitis and may end up in the hospital for two to four weeks of intravenous antibiotics. People can get quite severe pain from it. But in terms of prevention is, of course, worth all the cure in the world in this condition. And the way to prevent it is to decrease the intensity of our bisphosphonate treatment. And most of us now do not give what we used to give, which was monthly treatment for a year and then intermittently thereafter. We tend to give monthly treatment for a much shorter period of time and then quickly to move to two or three monthly treatment. The effect of bisphosphonates, as we see from the osteoporosis literature, is very long-lived indeed on bones. And you can probably get away with much longer intervals between treatments. We were talking before about chemotherapy. And one of the things that's starting to come out, you mentioned the fact that the Austrian study, there were very few relapses, even though the patients didn't get chemotherapy, is identification of patients who need chemotherapy and who don't need chemotherapy, and whether or not there's a correlation in terms of estrogen receptor. And also, there are a bunch of new genomic tests coming out, the mammoprint, the oncotype. What are your thoughts about all that? I just think this is one of the most exciting developments. And I think the technologies that we have available, I think, are exciting both for what they're achieving in real time, but more for they are, I think, a very important step along the way to an individualized medicine approach to cancer drug treatment. Um, Your listenership will be very familiar with Oncotype, much more familiar, in fact, than in Europe, where it's not routinely available. As you know, this is an assay which looks at 21 genes. And it can be done on patients after their surgery on paraffin tissue, which allows for a discrimination into several prognostic groups. And already it is being used to guide treatment. Some patients who are estrogen receptor positive who go on and have the assay and have very low risk of relapse are treated with hormones alone without chemotherapy. And it appears to be highly predictive for that. It may also be predictive for node positive patients. It's the subject of a large U.S. study, the intergroup Taylor X trial, which in fact we're also taking part in, in which patients with node negative, although it's being amended to include node positives at some stage during the year, patients who are HER2 negative and ER positive, pretty much regardless of tumor size, have their tissue tested using the Oncotype assay. And if they're low risk, the recommendation is for hormones alone. If they're high risk, they're recommended to take chemotherapy. And if they're in the intermediate relapse score range, they're randomized to get chemotherapy of the investigators choosing plus hormones or hormones alone. So I think that this will help extend it. The print was based on the original Amsterdam gene chip, which looked at a large number of genes. And that looks very robust as well, I must say. And also, again, quite strikingly appears to predict patients with node positive disease who can avoid chemotherapy. It's also the subject of a large European trial the MINDACT trial, which is a very, very ambitious undertaking, very complicated trial. And I think these two trials will give us quite a degree of information. But there is no doubt that we are moving very quickly past that old stage of making decisions based on people's chronological age, the size of their tumor, the grade of the tumor, and into a much more molecularly defined risk, which is, I think, very encouraging. Anything you want to add to what we've talked about today? I would say for your listeners, one of the questions that they're going to increasingly hear over the next year is should they take anthracyclines if they have HER2-negative disease? And this has emerged as a fairly raging controversy over the last year, and I'm afraid it's one that I don't think is going to go away for a while. NSABP and U.S. Oncology are addressing this in a major international trial, which will look at anthracycline versus non-anthracycline-containing chemotherapy. That's the so-called tic-tac-toe study. Exactly. It's a good study, bad name, but a good study. (laughs) And as well as that, we've had you know, more mature data over the last year from U.S. oncology suggesting that perhaps the docetaxel and cyclophosphamide regimen and a relatively small study, but still 1,000 patients, four cycles, was not only equivalent but was superior to four cycles of AEC, 
with uh, improved disease-free and overall survival, and also intriguingly with a trend towards fewer non-cancer-related deaths, suggesting perhaps that you know anthracycline does take a little toll on people. And there you have the TC regimen that you just talked about, those cyclophosphamide compared to TC plus an anthracycline, adriamycin, or TAC. And that's now been changed to add a third arm looking at TC with bevacizumab or avastin. That's correct. It's going to address two questions, the anthracycline question and the adjuvant bevacizumab question. What about bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting? We're seeing now trials in breast cancer, actually lung cancer, colon cancer. Obviously, it's used in these tumors in the metastatic setting. What do we know or what do we think we're going to see in terms of using bevacizumab as adjuvant therapy? Well, Neil, I think this is perhaps one of the best illustrations of the need for fundamentally different thinking in approaching molecular adjuvant therapeutics compared to our traditional cytotoxic adjuvant therapeutics. And there's a very compelling first principles argument which can be made that anti-angiogenic drugs may have a greater effect in the adjuvant setting than in the metastatic setting. We know that certainly even within the metastatic setting that the later the drugs are used, the less the benefit appears to be. And it may well be that the benefit will be, and this is speculative, may well be much greater in patients who only have very small volumes of disease, disease which has not yet formed, you know, well and maturely vascularized secondary deposits. So the studies which are underway are ECOG, are doing a study giving conventional sort of dose-dense anthracycline-type chemotherapy, anthracycline-taxane chemotherapy with or without bevacizumab. Um, we've already mentioned the tic-tac-toe study, which will be for HER2 negatives, and the BETH trial, which will be for HER2 positives.